Hi, it's Leon Dolan, and my new book, The Marriage Sabbatical, is out now and available everywhere. People Magazine chose it as an April pick of the month, one of the best this week, a hopeful take on commitment, they said, and an innovative story about marriage. Mmm, sounds juicy. The Marriage Sabbatical, out now, available everywhere. Hi, this is Julie. This is Liz. This is Sheila. This is Monica. This is Leanne. We are the Satellite Sisters. You are listening to Satellite Sisters To Go. You are listening to Satellite Sisters. This is our special series of interviews with authors that we do over the summer called the Satellite Sisters Word Write Festival. I am so happy today to welcome back to Satellite Sisters, Cindy Shupak, a very funny writer, director, and producer. I'm Leanne Dolan here in Pasadena, California. Cindy is joining me from LA. If you're thinking that name's familiar, how do I know her? It's because she has a bunch of Emmys and a bunch of Golden Globes from some of your favorite shows, including Sex in the City and Modern Family. She writes for Relationships. She's had regular columns in Glamour Magazine and Oh! The Oprah Magazine. And she was on Satellite Sisters with her first best-selling memoir, The Between Boyfriends book. Um, Cindy, welcome back to Satellite Sisters. Thank you so much. I'm such a fan of the Satellite Sisters. You know, the last time we talked to you, I don't know if you remember this, but we spoke to you from Elton John's hotel room in Las <laughs> Vegas, which was like, wow, she really is sex in the city. Oh my God. <laughs> well, it's nothing that glamorous this time. Well, um... that's the point. You have come a long way, Cindy, because your latest memoir is so fantastic. It's called The Longest Date, Life as a Wife. And it really is the follow-up to the Between Boyfriends book. But I'm proud of you. You've really grown in the <laughs> in the last few years. Can I just explain that Elton John's hotel please, room? Just please, in case it seems I don't know what that could mean to people. Um, but uh, actually, I was doing a pilot based on Elton John and his manager, and Elton was doing the music for us. So it was this crazy situation. Like I always think of it as if it was like the Make a Wish Foundation granted me this amazing opportunity to travel on Elton John's jet and see concerts and talk to him and hear him stories, but I wasn't dying. So it was <laughs> just, and I always feel a little guilty for not getting the show on the air or not dying because it just seemed like too good of a thing <laughs> to get to do. But um, I did create this pilot, but it didn't go to series. It was for ABC. I don't know if ABC was ready for something about an aging gay rock star or not, but it wasn't amazing experience to get to travel and get to know him and hear his stories and hear his music. So that's why I was in Elton John's hotel room for a while. Um, yeah, you were yeah. whispering. It was so dramatic. You were like, <laughs> I'm in Elton John's hotel room because he was sleeping. We had a Saturday morning show and you were talking to us and it was like, I don't know, 8 a.m. in Vegas and you were tired and he was asleep. <laughs> now also to clarify, it wasn't like I was on one side of the bed and Elton was okay. sleeping on the other. He had, his hotel room means kind of a suite, <laughs> like a giant, almost a house that's on top of a hotel when he was doing his red piano tour. So uh, I, I'm sure he was in the next room. <laughs> well, okay. It was a fun memory for me. And we had a chance to reconnect in person a couple of weeks ago when we did a panel discussion together. And you know what, Cindy, you described your book very briefly in our very brief panel discussion as, quote, like a funny look at infertility. 
It is so much more than that. Oh my gosh. I mean, it is a funny look at infertility, but it's really like an amazing look at a woman's life in midlife. You know, you started, you had this glamorous life as a writer and then you got married and you adopted a dog and you went through a five-year journey of infertility. And I just, I laughed, I cried. That's my review. It's a fantastic book. What, what made you want to sit down and write this now? You know, I'd written for so long about dating. I wrote my, you know, I had columns. I wrote about sex for uh, the Oprah magazine while we were trying to get pregnant. And it became so fraught for me that it was like, what am I doing? I'm, you know, here's how to spice up your sex life. And meanwhile, we're, you know. <laughs> yeah. Standing, you were literally standing on your head. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so, um, but I did feel that uh, when I, you know, I felt for so long writing about dating, the quest was to get married and, to, you know, that was the happy ending, but then what? And I think I wrote in my book, Happily Ever After is the epitome of lazy writing mm -hmm. because really the adventure continues. You still have these issues, but I think there's a little bit of a survivor guilt or something among women who've been single or writing about being single or still empathize so much about the quest that you sort of feel like, you know, Literally, I made my bed. Now I lie in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I should just shut up. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually, that means like L-I-E, like I will lie um, about how great everything is. <laughs> because really there's still issues. It's just a little bit, you know, you can't just break up with the guy. So the stakes are different. And then when you're trying to have a child, you've got this project together. So I really wanted to write about marriage in the same way I'd always written about dating with a sense of humor, but also with kind of brutal honesty about um, what's difficult. And my way of writing is always hopefully commiserating. I'm not saying the guy is the problem. It's not a book about like, you know, why husbands are idiots. Although no. once no, <laughs> but it's kind of about your own, um, you know, the way that the thing I liked about sex in the city, that they were the problem a lot of the time. And that's what's so interesting. <laughs> and in writing this, I really realized how much of the problem I was. I just had these, you know, I, I would say I still had a fear of intimacy, even though I was married. So suddenly you're just right stuck with someone like a mirror in your face all the time and all your moods and all your feelings about how orderly your house should be or if you don't want a slobbering St. Bernard <laughs> come to the forefront. Yeah, that is part of the interesting part of the journey is you had a quite an issue with just mess in general. <laughs> that, like you were not willing to sort of give up the cleanliness of your home. Yeah, for a long time I wrote in my house. I mean, first of all, I was one of those women who bought a house myself, uh, which was such a great accomplishment, but also a little in my Between Boyfriends book, I think I said, you know, what's next, seven cats, and yeah. is this the end? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a bit of a fear of making my own home. It, did that just mean I would never share it with someone? And uh, it didn't mean that. It was great to, like, discover my own style and have my own place and be proud that I could afford it, and, you know, it was really mine. But then letting someone join me there was a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. For me and and my housekeeper. And your housekeeper. Yes. She goes down for the count. After the marriage, you have to it's not the husband you get rid of, it's the housekeeper. She has her expectations are too high. Yeah, it was it was truly like 
uh, it was almost like I was projecting. She, you know, I had worked on Sex in the City, so I had been bi-coastal for a while. So there was a while she took care of the house when nobody was there. So it never even really got messy, but I felt good having somebody sort of there watching it. Then when I came back, you know, it was a little bit of an adjustment for her because I was a bit messy. Then when Ian entered my life, it was a big adjustment for her. And then we got this dog, St. Bernard, and there was her. And all these things that were truly adjustments for me, I was just noticing were really making her feel very <laughs> put upon and exhausted and frustrated at the going mess. And I felt, you know, I feel the same, but that's why you're here to help. <laughs> so, yeah, so we finally had to find, um, you know, someone who just knew the house as it was now, which was a big mess. You know, your husband is adorable. Uh, I went over and I liked your Facebook page. I want to encourage everyone to do that. Uh, Shupak is spelled C-H-U-P-A-C-K. I'll have links at SatelliteSisters.com. But I read this whole book about Ian. I thought, well, he's an awfully good sport because it is a brutally honest book and things go right and things go wrong. And there's a lot that happens in the first five years of your marriage, five to seven years of your marriage. And then there he is on your Facebook page. He's adorable. Good work. I mean, <laughs> I just say that. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah, <laughs> we used to joke how he was going to get Ian is dreamy.com, which was a joke because it was like, I'm writing this book about us. And he was joking that, you know, it was people were going to think he was dreamy and I was the problem. And then that kind of did become what it, what the upshot <laughs> <laughs> and uh he's also gotten in better shape than he's ever been in his life much to you know it should be I know great. doesn't that kill be, you uh. you know it should be great news because I'm his wife I right. get to enjoy it but it just makes me feel like oh what do I have to do now do I have to go to hot yoga now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I will say um you know what what you started with the infertility journey so kind of the premise of the book in addition to me wanting to write about marriage, like I read about dating was that we married later in life. You know, I was 40 and, um, I wished we had five years just to be a couple, but we were going to have to try to have a kid right away. And then it took us five years plus to finally, we ended up finally adopting the child. Oh, um, I didn't know if you wanted me to give away the ending. <laughs> no, I know. I feel like I debate oh. that. It's not like the sixth sense where it's like, what? <laughs> it's not okay. a crazy ending. <laughs> but we did go through the gamut of fertility and then we tried egg donor and then we, you know, looked into adoption. So it's really the whole journey and all the adjustments you have to make along the way. And um, I know so many friends who've been through this and so many women write to me who are going through it or um, did go through it. And even though it, you know, has a happy ending and a lot of what I read was kind of after you finally find the ending. When you're in the middle of it, it's so hard. And that's when I was writing a lot of this book. When oh, really? When you were actually in the middle? I mean, it is a five-year journey. You you actually get pregnant on your honeymoon, right? You Feel free to correct yeah. my timeline. I read the whole book. Uh, you got pregnant on your honeymoon, but you lost that pregnancy. And then, you know, four years down the line, you lose another baby, which is really devastating. But I'm interested that you were writing this in the middle of it because it's seems it seems like you do have a perspective on it but you weren't you were writing it right then I was writing you know while it was happening I was writing a lot of this and then when I put the book together I, I wrestled a lot with the tense right I bet 
when things are in, you know, first person and immediate and you're still in the middle of it, it feels so different to me than, you know, once you've kind of gotten through it. And that's why there's one chapter after that second time we lost a baby and that was an egg donor um, situation. And, you know, we'd been, we'd told all our friends and then at like 14 weeks, just something went wrong and it was so difficult. And I wrote about it at the time. And so that's the one chapter that was the one called bow now. Mm-hmm. Ian and I have this, actually it's our anniversary today. Oh. It's our nine, nine year anniversary today. And we've gotten lazy about rewriting these vows, but we used to write our vows every year and it would be kind of a review of the year. And I just included my really raw vows that year in the book of how I was feeling at that moment. And I also included an essay Ian wrote about how he kind of got through that and how men deal with some deal with some of these issues because men really don't talk about it. And that was the one part I really wanted to leave in the present tense because I felt like writing about that after we'd put it in perspective, after we'd dealt with the pain, just didn't exactly do it service. And, you know, well, um, it was an incredibly moving section of the book, both your vows and then Ian's essay on it. I was, I had to put the book down yesterday as I was finishing it. I was sobbing after reading his essay because uh-huh. you, you're both so honest and you're both, I mean, it was a very difficult loss and it took you, you did not bounce back, Cindy, like despite uh-huh. like the stupid things people said to you, like get back on the horse or whatever they said, yeah. it was very moving writing. I'm sure you've heard actually from a lot of women that that was really important for them to read that because you just lay it all out there. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing I noticed when we were going through it and even now with the book is I think women, we tend to put ourselves in on kind of a scale of one to 10 of our pain. So even though we have something horrible happen and, you know, we had this, you know, second loss of a baby at 14 weeks, part of me was always saying, well, but I have friends who are trying to have a baby as single women or who've had so many miscarriages or tried IVF 14 times. So you sort of mitigate your feeling or or you feel apologetic that you're even feeling bad because so many people have been through worse or, you know, at least this. And um, I believe it's important to keep that perspective, especially sometimes as a writer, but for you personally, uh, you know, it's, you're horrible at the moment yeah. <laughs> and you kind of have to treat it with the respect that it deserves and you can't push through it. Sometimes you just have to live it. So I, I mean, I feel like I want to say that caveat with it, that I know so many women have been through so much more and, but I still hope that the book is comforting in just saying, let your story be, you know, let it breathe as much room as it takes, as much time as it takes to, you know, digest it that, and this is mine and so many other people have shared with me or just hopefully will get the permission to share with their friends or even just their spouse about how they're really feeling about it. Because, um, even though you move from plan A to plan B to plan C on this baby quest, there's time in between that you have to kind of recover from whatever, whatever went on. <laughs> and, and you all, well, that's clear. And that recovery was not easy. And you also make it clear like that you're getting asked constantly about it too, which is unusual. Like people feel like they can chime in uh, and, you know, you have to sort of keep justifying what you're feeling. And I thought the both the, your piece and your husband's piece, like I feel like I'm better informed now to help somebody who might go through the same stuff. So it's it just really great writing. Oh, good. I, I hope so. Yeah, I think maybe we – over invited, you know, all of our friends into our life when we started. And then you go through some hard things. You're like, you know what? We don't really want anyone to know. 
Right. <laughs> you both for now. <laughs> Done with your surfaces. <laughs> and, um, so it's a fine line between that, you know, old fashioned version of don't tell anyone you're pregnant until three months in because when you're going through fertility, sometimes you go through so many ups and downs, even in that first three months that you need maybe a few people to share with. But so you sort of have to figure out how to let people in and then how to tell them thank you. For <laughs> yeah, stop. <laughs> I'm not going to return your phone calls, but thanks. <laughs> you know, but then because at, at your heart, you're a comedy writer, uh, you go back to the funny and there's there's a point when you decide to proceed with adoption, there's a point in the adoption process where um, you you interview a woman who is or you're interviewed by a woman who is expecting twins. And then immediately after delivery, she will be incarcerated and you're actually rejected by her. <laughs> so, how did that feel? No, I did. Uh, you know, you. I, just I was rejected at the dog pound once. Like they wouldn't give me like a dog they were gonna kill, and that yeah. made me feel really bad. But this, this was unbelievable. I, I mean, with like no, it was funny because it wasn't even reject. Like uh, we, yeah, I felt like in the beginning it was hard to tell if we were. It was just clear we needed babies. We needed a baby and they had the baby. So even though we were interviewing birth mothers, they were interviewing us. And there's all sorts of reasons a birth mother might not want you. And, you know, we were Jewish. That was for some people an issue. Some, you know, interestingly, some birth mothers would prefer a gay couple because they don't really want to feel they'll be replaced as the, you know, the mother. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there were just all sorts of, or we were old. We, you know, we did discover, and I think I put in the book that as we were looking at egg donors and, you know, birth mothers, we completely would have rejected ourselves because of our age, our <laughs> mental health and our families, like our weight, just, we would be like, well, these people are not having our baby for sure. Yeah. So I understand, but yeah, it was a little demoralizing to feel like, you know, we have so much love to offer and we're really ready to take on a baby. And then, you know, somebody who's going to jail having twins did not feel we were the right parents. For her baby. <laughs> that was, I was like, okay, that's bad. That's bad. All right. We're talking to Cindy Shupak. Her book, The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, is a wonderful memoir that incorporates marriage and being a parent and adopting a dog. We're going to talk more with Cindy, particularly about her giant St. Bernard. People want to know. I want to know. But we're going to take a break. We're the Satellite Sisters. Stay with us. Thanks. You're listening to the Satellite Sisters. This is the Satellite Sisters Word Write Festival. Our guest today is writer Cindy Shupak. Her book, The Longest Date, Life as a Wife, is really a wonderful memoir about the first couple of years of marriage and all the trials and tribulations and adjustments people go through with a particular spotlight on infertility. If that's something you've gone through, Cindy somehow manages to make it both funny and very moving. Um, Cindy, you you gave the ending away. So you did end up adopting a little girl what has that experience been like for you now? How old is she? How long have you had her now? Um, we were in the delivery room. It's an open adoption. So we met the birth mother beforehand um, and she's three and a half now. And, you know, as everyone says, I can't imagine any other baby. It doesn't seem I can't imagine loving anyone anymore. So and, uh, you know, on the way we talked to I have friends who 
you know, the whole gamut, who, friends who are adopted themselves, friends who adopted abroad, we did it domestically. And um, I have a friend who gave up a baby when she was like 16 and then has reconnected. So she was a birth mother. So I kind of, we kind of got all perspectives, which is the way we always went about things is trying to just wait till something felt right to us. Um, I write in the book, we, we did have kind of a funny stutter step on the way to adoption because we realized that uh, Ian wanted to adopt when we talked about adopting, he always imagined adopting from Africa. And I always imagined adopting from China because we both, we had friends who'd done both. And, and we just couldn't reconcile these, this adopted baby. Like, and we kept both feeling kind of vaguely racist whenever we would discuss why we felt our way was the better way. (laughs) (laughs) uh, We really couldn't reconcile it. And then it started to seem like domestic adoption made more sense just for us because, um, we we really like the idea of having a newborn and having the newborn experience. And with domestic, we were able to be in the delivery room. And, you know, it was kind of great for us. But everybody has their own reasons. And I, well, the one thing I've learned is you really can't impose your idea of why you're you know, that's what worked for us, but I know everything has worked for everybody. And it's just a tricky business once you get into it. Right. Well, it's clear your whole journey is a lot of choices, a lot of choices from beginning to end in terms of the, you know, the infertility and what to do about that. A lot of choices that people have many, many opinions on, which is weird. Yeah. It's funny that, well, people share their opinions, hoping to help you. And sometimes it does help. And then sometimes it just feels overwhelming and you just, you get an interesting window. I mean, it was, I think I said at one point, it was like, we were buying a car. Like people are like, well, you should, you know, Katrina had just happened. You should adopt a child from Katrina. Cause there's a lot of, you know, suddenly it was like, everybody had their favorite idea for how we should make our family (laughs) and my parents, you know, everybody's chiming in on what they think would be good and normal for them. And, and, or even, even just thinking about who's the most needy child was something that you normally, when you're getting pregnant, you don't have to think about. Right. it's like, are we awarding some child? With, you know, it's really some birth mothers didn't think so. (laughs) So it was really tricky. Uh, you know, it's something you don't realize when you're going through infertility, but you are forced to make these choices of what your tolerance is. And you have to be really honest with yourself. Um, it's not the same, but I was just listening. I just was remembering. This is the other time I remember you have to be honest. It's in my Between Boyfriends book. But one time when I was, um, um, <laughs> you'll see how this is related. This okay. Is my- I can't wait. This is how my mind works. Um, I wanted to bungee jump, but um, you had to write your, I decided not to do it, not because I was afraid to bungee jump in New Zealand, but because you had to get your weight written on your hand. And and if you lied, you died, basically. Oh, yeah. You said you were lighter then the bungee cord would be too short and you would plunge into the (laughs) ground or the water. So um, I always think there's certain situations where you really can't lie. And this is one of them with adoption or even with egg donor. You have to really be honest with yourself of what you're going to feel comfortable with and what you want. And there's questions like, you know, what if the baby's a, what if the father's unknown? What if it was the victim of a rape or, you know, all these things you never thought you'd think about what kind of disabilities are you comfortable with or medical information if the mother was on drugs. And, um, 
you really have to take stock and be honest with yourself and your partner if you're doing it with a partner. And it's a process that, you know, you don't have to do if you're just having a baby. You don't right. have to play like that. <laughs> yeah. You're just like pink or green for the, for the nursery. That's basically what you have to decide if you do it. Yeah. You know, if you're just having a baby. Yeah, it feels very strange to be to to sort of have the choice, even though it feels like you have no choice because you you have no control. You know, it is interesting though. You you really sort of wrap it all up at the end of the longest date. This experience has made you grown and has you know made you grow in unexpected ways. Is that fair to say? I mean, you feel like you're a different person from the marriage, adopting your dog, adopting your daughter. Like you're not the same person you were ten years ago. Is that true? Yes. And it's funny. My editor said, you know, at the end of it, my last chapter was kind of about the adoption. And then at the end, he said, I had this great editor, Rick Cott at Viking. Um, and it really helped me with the book because it's, uh, he, he really helped me make sure each chapter was kind of a bigger issue. Like there was one that I had some funny anecdotes that he said, you want it to add up to more. So there's really there, you know, there's a chapter on traveling and the travel test of traveling with your spouse. I have a chapter on escapes, which is my husband, you know, wanted a man cave. (laughs) And I, but I realized my escape in the book was, uh, reality TV and it was the same sort of escape. And I realized I had actually had a real problem at the moment with reality TV. <laughs> I was really kind of binging on reality TV. <laughs> In fact, he, he said, calls you out on it. You're called out. Yeah. He calls you out. But that chapter is about how in any marriage you need some kind of escape, some men it's golf or whatever, but you kind of have to allow for that and for yourself as well. So, so my editor really helped me sort of shape the chapters. And I, and at the end he said, well, we need to know how this child has changed your life. And I think when I was finishing writing the book, she was two and a half maybe. And I really had to think about it. I was like, I, how have, I mean, what was my arc? And I kind of reread everything in the book and realized, wow, I was kind of a curmudgeon, a little bit of a control freak. Like, you know, I'm still some of these things, but I didn't really know my neighbors before. I love that part of the book where you just, (laughs) you're like, I never talked to my neighbors, like ever. (laughs) Yeah. And then Ian met all the neighbors and then the dog. Once you have a dog, you meet people. At first, when I had a dog, I said, I don't want to insult your listeners, but I really realized, I think I am a dog person. I'm just not a dog person person. (laughs) (laughs) Because I did really like my dog, but suddenly I was in this gang of people who were so all about the dogs (laughs) that I was like, wait a minute, I'm not sure. I'm one of you or not, but now I'm even a dog person person. It's okay to have a level of tolerance. Like I heard (laughs) a group of people at yoga the other day talking about their dogs for like 15 minutes. And I was like... You people need to get another hobby. Like I yeah. like dogs too, but really that's a 15 minute conversation taking <laughs> your dog to the beach. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like in kind of looking back at the book, my journey was from my house, which was very organized, this life I really liked, even though I wanted someone in it, I really did like my life. I traveled, I liked my work and um, I had to really make room for for life in my life. And that was first my husband, then my dog, who I think I wrote, we had, I'd never, I lived by the beach since 1997. I never had sand in my house till we had a dog. <laughs> like, so all of a sudden I was like, what is this on the floor? Oh my God, there's sand here. And it's not like I'm a total need freak. I just, I think as I wrote in my house, uh, it was just my sanctuary kind of, and I, you know, things were as I left it. And then when you're married, it's like, you've been robbed every night. Like what, how, where did this go? I think someone was, <laughs> everything's messed up. Who cooked last night. So it just feels like 
I had to get used to that certain level of life in my life. And then the baby just added to that. And now I feel um, just so much more a citizen of the world, I have to say, because of the dog and the baby and the, you know, I'm so much more attuned now when I go out. It's funny how you can, you know, it's not unlike when you're deciding <laughs> I'm going to totally make make this much more materialistic, but <laughs> When I'm thinking of getting new shoes, I just suddenly pay attention to shoes because I'm like, oh, let, let's see what everyone's wearing. And then what would I like? And what is that? I don't know. So I sort of I feel like until you have a child, the children on the street are really not your business. <laughs> you don't even notice them. You don't know how their parents are dealing with them that much. And same with the dogs. Dogs used to, My husband used to stop people with dogs. And I was like, why are we stopping? Why do we have to talk to the person with the dog? Even before we had a dog, he was like that. And now I feel like I'm kind of one of all these people and I am paying attention and, you know, I'm part of this world. So that's how it changed me for the better. Um, you know, I use, you mentioned when I saw you that you were developing this for television and I, I hope that it all works out because I feel like there are so few portraits of real marriages on TV. And, uh, I feel like you nailed a lot of what marriage is really like in your book. And I hope we can see that on TV. Is that still going forward? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working with Jake Kasdan, the director on that. And he, um, he did New Girl and he just did sex tape of the movie. He's great. And we developed it together. We I named the husband and wife in the book. It's just Cindy and Ian and, you know, it's just me basically. But I <laughs> right. renamed them and gave them different jobs for the show because when the network started talking about, you know, we like when you do this, I was like, all right, this is going to be weird. <laughs> <laughs> me but they mean what I and I also wanted to open it up so I could have other writers on staff with their marriage experiences and you know wide it out but then I will say I might be able to be more honest in some ways under the guise of fiction if you can believe because yeah well, it is but... brutal it's brutally honest <laughs> I mean there are things in here well you said your your father made you take some stuff out <laughs> which I appreciated but no I mean you go there girl you you do yeah, yeah I'm not afraid to go I mean I I just appreciate the truth. I hope whenever I'm writing this kind of first person thing, I think, oh, what if no one cares? And, you know, is this completely egotistical to think that my story is going to matter? But I try not to think about it. I try to just think like I'm writing what I write or share with friends and let the reader kind of be let in as a friend and hope that it is, um, you know, moving because it's so honest and because it's funny, hopefully. Well, you certainly, I mean, you've certainly touched millions and millions of women who love sex in the city. I mean, that's such a touchstone show for so many females out there. It was such a pleasure to discover that. I can remember I was just married and having kids when that came out and my husband didn't get it. He's like, these women just constantly make bad choices. And I was like, I'm just grateful to have a show where four female women are the leads and the show appears to be written by all women. Okay. Just you go to bed. Okay. Just go to bed. <laughs> I am here with this dog and this baby all day, and this is the show I want to watch. <laughs> so, um, it was really a pleasure to work. I remember I heard you guys talking about the Gracie Awards just recently on your show, and I remember one of the first Gracies. I think you were talking. I think it was at the Plaza, right? One of the first Gracies that we were at. And you and you were talking about your award was at the very end. Ours was at the very end. I remember like nobody was left, but like you guys and us. <laughs> and when we accept, it was like, hello to the wait staff. Thank you for <laughs> but 
I remember that, especially Julie Rottenberg and Elisa Zaritsky, who also wrote on this show. We were all fans of yours, so we were excited to meet the Satellite Sisters there, too. But is publishing is a wildly different business than television because in you know we you know we were doing this panel discussion together talking a little bit about our books and I wonder you've had such success on TV but publishing is like hand to hand combat it's like one book at a time is it yeah. interesting I mean really like you are selling <laughs> one copy at a time uh, whereas TV millions of people are watching uh, do you enjoy that is it frustrating how are you finding the publishing business itself. Well, it was interesting because you and I and Annabelle got to do that um, panel in Pasadena, the Pasadena Lip Fest. And I remember Annabelle, who's such a savvy businesswoman and a New York Times bestseller and such a fantastic author. And I know you interviewed her for this as well. Um, You know, she was really Say, why aren't why don't they have the books right out front and why are we even doing this if they're not selling the books which I totally get and then I said well I think it's just night I was being completely Pollyanna <laughs> people will discover us and they'll you know want to know more about us and maybe they'll look it up and and uh, she finally said to me this is my bread and butter like you have your you have tv and other things and it really <laughs> is true that I feel like I'm just visiting a little bit so I do feel really excited just when pe- anybody discovers my book or writes my website or you know writes a nice review on Amazon you know I which feel- are all really important that's the irony like one good review on Amazon is a huge deal I and know that- it makes such a difference like you could be four stars and then you get one good five-star <laughs> review and you're up a four and a quarter and it looks so much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those one-star reviews where someone's like, the packaging was ripped. You're like, seriously? Is that my fault that the packaging was, was ripped? One, there was one one-star review where someone said, I just listened to her on Leonard Lopate and I have no use for this book. And, um, and it brought my total because I had like three reviews. So suddenly I'm like a two-star book or something. You know, it's my mom, my grandma, yeah. <laughs> and him. Uh, and my husband, he said, well, he didn't even read the book. That's a that's an errored review or something. He wrote to Amazon and said this shouldn't count because this guy clearly didn't even read the book, and they took it off. Imagine oh, that. all right, power that to the like people. The, yeah, <laughs> that's like the equivalent of a man putting his his shirt in the puddle for you to cross right now. Oh. You married Norma Ray, yeah, Norma Ray. But anyway, I um I do. It still matters very much to me, and I do enjoy. You know, I I really enjoyed my book tour. I enjoyed meeting people. Like I loved doing the the sixth and I in Washington, and I did some NPR stuff, and I got to do Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, which I loved, and as a panelist, and you know, I loved doing your show. So I'm kind of a Pollyanna about you know. I just feel it's for me because I usually write fiction and I write for other characters to be able to write a memoir in the first person and the publishing as hard as it is, is really respectful of the voice of the author. Um, still, I think, especially if it's a memoir, cause it's your words and your voice. So it's just satisfying to write for me. And I still do storytelling around town, which is the same sort of first person satisfying thing. I like hearing those stories from people, the true stories. Yeah. So, I was interested to hear that that's how you developed the material for your book, that that was part of your process was actually doing uh, this long form storytelling. That's so popular these days. Uh, were you so, ever a trained stand up, or is it just something you've learned, you know, over time? Um, well, I did storytelling in New York at the Moth, mm-hmm. my, uh, 
I write in my book, but my, you know, I don't know, people who know me know that I was married once before to someone who realized he was gay. <laughs> it's kind of my most popular moth story. You can hear it on audible.com. And, you know, when I was, I didn't know that, how to work that into this uplifting you know, I, story about adoption. That first failed marriage to the gay guy, but okay, you did it. You've, you worked it in. <laughs> I appreciate that you didn't. Cause a lot of people start with that. And I'm like, that's not really what this is about though. No. And even writing this book, I was like, it's, can I just pretend I'm just marrying for the first time? Because that marriage felt, I was so young. He didn't know who he was clearly, but I didn't so much know who I was. So it almost felt like just a do over <laughs> for both of us. But I did tell a moth story about it. And that was the first time I performed without notes, just told the story in New York. And um, it helped me a lot realize what's important about the story. And they used to tell us at the moth when you're rehearsing your story this should be an interesting story in the third person as well as the first which I always try to remember that even if it didn't happen to you if you just heard the story would it be compelling and um oh, and I'm writing I, that down I'm ready that's a good one yeah <laughs> okay, try, to, try to make sure just if you heard it about someone would it be interesting and then um and then I did take a stand-up workshop with Judy Carter, who has a really great book out about how to do stand-up. Basically, anything you're angry about makes a good stand-up routine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just write down the things that bug you. <laughs> and there you've got a good five minutes already for any open mic. Um, but I, I went to that stand-up workshop when I first started doing comedy writing because I found myself in comedy rooms with a lot of people who had been stand-ups or who just you know, often mostly male. And they were so comfortable just throwing stuff out and pitching ideas and jokes. And, um, and I was really used to writing. So it just felt like a big transition to go from writing my funny ideas, which I could polish and get right to just throwing it out there. So I took this. That's just great advice for any comedy writer. Cause you worked on Raymond, right. And was it coach too? So yeah, they, Yeah. yeah. Yes, on and um and at Modern Family it was the same thing, you know, really funny people in a room and you have to speak up and just throw it out there and hope it's funny and um <laughs> you know, and it's it's a certain bravery. So someone suggested I try stand up just to get used to that idea and kind of tightening your your comic ideas and so I took this workshop and I had like five minutes of stand up, but I quickly felt like I'm not this isn't what I want to do with my life, but it was good to just try it and try material and see that it connected with an audience. And I still find storytelling and often with storytelling, you can read the piece, which I'm still more comfortable with um, that to be a good way to just, just get used to making sure you're connecting with the audience instead of just writing something that's interesting to you. Now I know you've directed a short and I, you, I understand you're working on a feature. Um, What's that transition like? Like, you you know, you've run writer's rooms before, but is it totally different being a director? It's Well, it's interesting because I've been on sets for a long time as a writer in TV. You get to be on the set when you're filming. So on Sex and the City, on, you know, Raymond Raymond and Modern Family, I was there when it was, you know, well, it's it's different for different shows, but uh, which was just just a whole other hour. But anyway, let's just say I've been on sets a lot and I'd been sitting next to the director a lot and uh when you're a writer on set you are so bored you're doing crossword puzzles you're waiting till someone says I have a question about this line or you're waiting till they film which is just a small portion of the time the rest of the time is especially in Sex and the City there was a lot of hair and makeup there was wardrobe adjustments there was lighting and then two minutes of dialogue and then hair and makeup (laughs) that makes us all feel better to know that thank you for telling us that thank you oh yes there was a a lot involved in looking that good and um and so as a writer you don't have that much to do but you're there to kind of help so 
when I directed my short, I really enjoyed that. I was just kind of, you know, you'd think it might be the opposite where it's exhausting and it is tiring, but it was exciting to be needed the whole time. Like there was always questions and those hair and makeup adjustments were partly your call and how, where the shot was going to be, if the background looked okay, if the props were going to work, um, you know, every aspect of it. So even as a writer in TV, you're involved in casting and pre-production and meeting with the director. You do a lot that prepared me to direct, but then directing on the set, you just have a, such a greater role and you're really... Um, you also get to be creative and kind of think on the spot. And as the writer director, I was able to sort of rewrite things or figure out if something wasn't working on the spot. And it was really fun. It was, it's very, it was fun. So now I'm trying to, um, I'm hoping to direct a feature that is a screenplay that I rewrote. I didn't write the original. It's an adaptation of a book and we have a cast and that's just a whole other thing. If you think publishing is knocking door by door, <laughs> you should see what it's like to try to get film financing as a female director for a female project. <laughs> I will it's be watching. Fun. Be watching closely. I'll be curious. <laughs> Seven years from now. Let's hope it doesn't take, you know, a hundred years to do it. I totally understand how it could because every day is like putting one little Lego in and then some days like five Legos fall out and then some days one and then you finally have your cats and then it's time for a TV and they have TV shows to do. And it's just, when, when I was working on trying to put it together, because we were hoping to film this last spring, um, the Olympics happened. And I remember thinking, now if, if you ran a film like you know, or if the Olympics were run like you run, like you try to put together a film, it would be like you'd ask all the athletes, when do you think you'll be ready? And <laughs> let's just make sure this is a good time for everybody. <laughs> and then we'll decide on the date for the Olympics. <laughs> and then we'll figure out what country based on where it's most cost effective. And there would be no Olympics, basically. <laughs> Yeah, that that sounds fun. Wow, that it, sounds awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> it's really the reason I went back to TV because I was like, all right, at least on TV they make it or they don't, but it's not, you know, it doesn't go on forever. So Right, Hopefully there's a season, you pay, you know if it's going to go and then you move on when it doesn't. Yeah, for me, writing different forms like books and TV and magazine, I, and you know, it's all helpful just for your sanity because when one is too crazy, you've got the other. Well, Cindy, I can't recommend this book highly enough, The Longest Date, Life as a Wife. I know uh, it's on our Satellite Sisters Best Beach Bag Books, and we've gotten some great reviews. So if you've enjoyed the book, go to Cindy's Facebook page or put up a re review on Amazon to uh, undo, you know, what that mean guy said. Uh <laughs> Thank you so much, Leanne. Thank you. I'm so honored to be in a beach bag book. Well, it's better than a beach bag book. So I just, you know, we use that term broadly. And no, uh, no. you, will, you will laugh and you will cry. And uh, it's been really a pleasure to speak to you. Come back. Um, come back when the movie's done. Uh, hopefully we'll still be um, alive. So <laughs> I'm sure technology will change completely. <laughs> but I'll come back to whatever cyberspace we're in. <laughs> All right. You've been listening to Satellite Sisters. Stay with us. A 
pleasure to talk to Cindy Shupak. Thanks so much for joining me today. Just a reminder that um, our list of Satellite Sisters Beach Bag books can be found at SatelliteSisters.com. There are lots more books on the list. I've already spoken to Amy Alcon in this series about her Manners book. I've spoken to Annabelle Gerwich, now Cindy Shupak. Claire Cook is coming up. There's a lot of books on that list, though, that go beyond that, uh, that group of women. So I encourage you to check it out. Also, do check out Audible. It's great to have them on board as a sponsor. And that URL again is audiblepodcast.com forward slash sisters. That gets you one free download of an audiobook and a 30-day trial. So check it out. If you like podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. I guarantee it. Um, hey, it's time for me to head out, but I just want to remind you to keep reading, keep listening, and don't forget, call your satellite sister.